Amen. Well, let's read uh, the scripture reading uh, that Jonathan is going to teach us from in just a few moments' time. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 18 down to the end of the chapter in verse 25. Uh, And we're thrilled to be continuing our journey through this great epistle uh, this morning. 1 Peter 2 verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit... Is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. And we ask God to bless uh, the reading of his word to our hearts this morning. Uh, I'm going to change the way I was going to open this slightly um, and start this in a way that's probably not as giddy and excited as I normally am as we come to a passage. I want us to feel just reminded as we're, this passage is read to us again, the heaviness of what sits in our hands this morning. We are dealing now with the second illustration for us. This is not illustrative for the people it is written to. This is deeply personal, finds them exactly where they're at. We come to a Christian submission illustration two of slaves and masters. I want to thank you, those who were reading this passage at Growth Group or read this ahead, and those who reached out and said, Jonathan, we've been praying for you this week because this is a hard passage and I appreciate it because I've needed all those prayers because this is a very difficult passage for us to come to. This is a passage that to the readers is, to its original readers, is the reality of what it means to pick up a cross and follow Jesus. This is an excruciating call for those to whom it's written and that is our context this morning. This is difficult. This is not, it's just that friends, this is, this is hard. I want to remind us, same slide as last week, who we are, what we're to do. Verse 9, chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is who you are, this is who the Lord Jesus, uh, by his death and resurrection, has made you into. This is his church, this is us. What are we to do? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
This is who we are. This is what we're to do. This is yet another example for us. Not an abstract example. Last week wasn't abstract. As we looked at our uh, honouring of the government and the intricacies of that, I'm glad so many of you found that helpful and I pray today will be too, as hard as this is that we come to. Do you know, as you get older, I feel like I'm allowed to say that phrase, as you get older, your interests change. So, for example, I quite like clothes in Marks and Spencers now. And I feel like there's, I don't know, maybe that means I'm now in my late 20s, I don't know. I, I don't know when that happened. Um, I now have a National Trust membership. I feel like that makes me, and I'm now the dad that I couldn't stand when I was seven that stopped at every sign to read it in a National Trust place, that's me. And it's piqued my interest a little bit in history, and there's something fascinating I find um, regarding castles. I'm not going to bore you with tons of fact, but St. Andrew's Castle, if you can uh, think of it, uh, way back, middle of the 16th century, just post-Reformation, uh, after the murder of a cardinal uh, who was hated because he killed a prominent Protestant preacher, uh, there was a siege of the castle, and they used the, this group of lairds from Fife used a tactic to try and take over this castle. It lasted over a year and eventually was unsuccessful, though there are many examples of it being successful. Here is the principle. You build a tunnel under a wall and the wall falls down. That's the principle. You build a tunnel under a wall of a castle or under something massive and thick and big that to go through it or over it is just not possible. So you go under it. They might set it on fire. They might do various things. There is examples of this working. And interestingly, this is where we understand the word undermining to come from, which I find fascinating. That's literally what this is. They are undermining the wall so that as it's undermined, it will collapse. What we come to today is a structure in slavery that is like this wall. We come to a structure that for the small band of Christians in the first century to come to, they cannot get over it, they cannot get through it, they cannot dismantle it. Should the early church have focused on the disbanding of slavery, there would have been no early church. They would have been eradicated. One in five of the Roman Empire were likely slaves, something like 12 million people. And much like many culturally acceptable evils, this is an institution that seemed invincible. So as Peter's writing this to the saints in the outskirts of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, he's speaking to many of them that the Lord has saved who found themselves as slaves working for masters. These were household slaves. And the question he asks them as we come to this, is are you prepared to surrender everything to trust in the Lord Jesus and follow him? Because if you are, this is what it looks like. In the bleakest, most evil, most difficult of injustices that you could possibly face, are you going to surrender everything to God? And we may find, we will find Peter's instruction uncomfortable and shocking. You may be saying that you may have lots of questions. Why doesn't the New Testament explicitly call for the abolishment of slavery? How can there be a God if there is slavery 2,000 years ago and today? You might wonder why the New Testament never cries out for it. And instead calls for slaves to humbly submit to the masters 
not just masters, the most unjust of masters. Is the Bible pro-slavery? We'll answer that question in a minute. But what we're going to see this morning, friends, that this passage in 1 Peter 2 paints so spectacularly is that for us as God's people, everything rises and falls on the gospel. Everything rises and falls on the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're going to see is that the principles that are built into the very DNA of the gospel worked out to their logical conclusion centuries later would see the abolishment of slavery. John Piper puts it like this, the New Testament does not engage in a frontal attack on slavery, but a very powerful undermining of the roots of slavery. So let's come then, we're going to ask very simply, who, what, and why? Who are the servants? Who is it to those that are being written? And I think slaves is more of a helpful word for us. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So we want to understand. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word slavery. You might think of the the transatlantic slave trade that existed. That was probably what we learned about in school, if you were taught something of slavery, of people taken from homelands, shipped into the Western world uh, in barbaric conditions. It was based on the color of skin. It was predominantly for manual labor. It was forced. It was lifelong. There was no way to freedom. If a slave owner bought you, that was you. You were their commodity for life. And that's probably the picture we have. But that, that picture is quite different to what we see in the first century because the Roman and Greek worlds were just... The whole economic system, everything was built on on slavery. Slavery was so ingrained in the culture. And there's some differences. You could volunteer to become a slave because this would give you uh, rights as a Roman citizen and it would cover your basic needs. You don't have somewhere to go, somewhere to stay. Well, you can go and work for somebody and there you have your accommodation, you have basic needs covered. Slavery wasn't usually a permanent state of life. You could buy your freedom. Slaves could own other slaves, and often slaves could be of high standing in society. It wasn't normally just for manual labor, but you could have teachers, doctors, writers, secretaries, captains, all sorts of people as slaves. So, so the point here is just that the, slave, uh, the, the context is important as we understand this, that it's not a racial slavery, but it's a social slavery. But let's be unbelievably clear, slavery is evil in both contexts. It was and it is an evil institution. But what we want to try and do is see into the lives of those who lived this, of whose reality this was back in the first century. What are they to do? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What Peter does here is he expands on what Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 6, verses 5 and 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So what Peter does is he turns up the temperature. So Paul says obey, Peter says obey, even the worst of examples. Because he now brings the unjust masters into this. He turns this up and says, even in the most difficult 
of conditions, even in the hardest of ways, we're going to be subject to. With all respect, we covered this last week as we thought about what it meant to to honor and to fear. And with all respect, isn't respect for your masters, but it's a respect and a fear of God, not a fear of man. Remember, that's what we covered last week. We do so, we fear God because we love him, because we're in reverent awe and respect of who he is. So, so what we're seeing here is servants, be subject to your masters with all respect to God. We're not to submit uh, with respect in this way to our masters, but we, we subject ourselves because of our love and our fear of God. You see, submission, what, 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 we're, what we're trying to uncover and what we're trying to get, what Peter's trying to get to here is submission isn't about that person, but it has everything to do with your relationship with God. That's what he's trying to say, that, that your, your submission isn't to do with circumstance, but it's to do with you and God, whatever circumstance you might find yourself in. And, and so what Peter's painting for us is a picture of unconditional submission, no matter how bad the circumstances are between slaves and masters. That's hard. Unbelievably hard. This, to read this would have been utterly excruciating because it is a call to die. It is a call to die to yourself. That's what this is. This is a call to say, I'm going to give up. I mean, they'd already given up because this was the circumstances they were already in. Do you know, and, and, and so early in the church, this would have been people who were slaves becoming saved. So we've got to remember that these are people in the middle of this circumstance. It's not a selective submission, but it's a submission that submits to both kinds of masters. Those who are good and gentle and also those who are unjust. There were many good and gentle masters, but there were also those who were unkind, were unjust, and were ultimately evil. Interestingly, this word unjust comes from the similar word we find the word scoliosis. This idea of something being crooked or something being bent. This idea that those that are unjust just are not straight up and down. There is no integrity. They are not who you would want them to be. And the call then is to submit to those who are morally crooked. Again, the same as we said last week, we do not obey if it leads us to sin. If there is a command to sin, that is when disobedience is called for. But the character of the master is not an excuse to disobey. You see, we have options that the readers of this did not have. You might have tribunals. You probably have a HR department if you work somewhere. You maybe have trade union representation. We are able to report illegal and immoral and unethical behaviors. There are systems in place in the workplace to ensure that there is no unjust management and leadership. They didn't. But it's not God's will in that work that we or they would be rebellious within that work. And I want to give you an example, the best example I can think of, of what enduring the injustice of slavery looks like. And we find that in Genesis 37 to 50. You'll know him well. The story of Joseph. The brothers that wronged him, that sold him into slavery. The man who thrived as the Lord was near was then totally unjustly 
done by Potiphar's wife who wronged him. He fled. He did not sin. Pharaoh's cupbearer then wronged him. And a huge portion of Joseph's life is marked by an injustice. But as you read those 13 chapters of Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, Genesis does not dwell on the suffering and the injustice that he faced. But what it does is it traces how the Lord was with him in it, in all of it. And this is how Peter is addressing these mistreated Christians. He doesn't want them to sit in sorrow. He doesn't want them to sit and say, my conditions and my circumstances are so bad. But he encourages them to be mindful of God. Be mindful of God. Have who God is of everything he's done for you. This wonderful gospel message that's just come to you. Be mindful of God and what he has done. Endure it. Endure it by the grace of God so that the gospel might go forth. We saw it last week that the weapons of Christians in the political sphere are not worldly weapons, but they are weapons of honor and love. And this hardy band of Christians scattered throughout the empire, these elect exiles, if they were to try and overthrow this institution, they would have been wiped out. Just as we looked at last week, we are not called to be people marked by a political rebellion. These believers are not to be marked by their disobedience and rebellion against the authority. Why? Back up to verse 12. So they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What we see throughout history is a changing of a practice from within. Because Christianity would win both slaves and masters to the gospel. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. They had a real challenge. And that challenge was, gathering as the saints together, you had slave and master. There wasn't slave churches, there wasn't master churches. They came together. And the message was, all of you are equal. All of you are as one as you come together. Your identity... Is back up there in verse 9 as the people of God. There is no distinction in you between slave and master. And as you can imagine, for some, I'd imagine most likely the masters more so, this took a while. This took a while for them to process, a while for them to understand. There were huge challenges because of this. But because of this relationship with the Lord Jesus, because of a faithfulness, to the gospel. Christians led the charge that would eventually expose and extinguish slavery. It would take a long time. But Peter had to deal with the harsh realities of what they faced there and then. And these dear brothers and sisters, called not to revolution, but to love and to good works and humble, God-fearing submission. Peter's goal isn't to protect or to preserve the institution of slavery. He wants nothing to do with that. He's not concerned about that. He's concerned about the advancement of the gospel. Much like last week, he's less concerned about who Nero is and what Nero's doing. He's not obsessed with the evil of the government of the time. But he's concerned about the advancement of the gospel and how the Lord's people thrive in it. Do you know, we've sung two songs today that have the words in them, I am happy. And you may have read them and thought, it's a bit plastic. 
It's a bit fake because there's no smile on my face. Feels a bit weak to sing a song, uh, to sing words like that. But what we're looking at this morning is a happiness, a contentment, and a joy that was deliberate, so that as we as we burrow more into the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus, our joy might flourish. So as we think of that happiness, we're not talking about walking around smiling to everybody. It's not superficial like that. But it is a happiness that is a joy and a contentment of the soul. And that's what Peter's trying to get us, these people, these early believers to see. We want you to have all contentment in Jesus. We want you to trust in Jesus above all else because that's where you'll find your contentment because we talk about uh, circumstances dictating where we are and if there is no happiness, which likely in these circumstances, if you are a slave to an unjust master, where are you finding happiness? There is no happiness there. There is no happiness in that circumstances. so you must turn to Jesus. And I think then, as we look at the application of this, there is a challenge for us sitting here today. All of us have and, and sit under varying spheres of authority. Maybe it's bosses, teachers, the government, the police, mums, dads, husbands, wives, whatever. There are all varying levels of authority. But I think it's possible for us to rush and be too quick to apply this to ourselves in a way that patronizes these first century Christians. This wasn't illustrative to them as it is to us. This was deeply personal. We don't want to minimize what was an utterly excruciatingly difficult instruction for these believers to receive. We can't sit here, I can't stand here and try and say that there are some nice light things for us to pull out of this, to look at and reflect on this week. And that somehow this is light and easy. Can you imagine hearing this instruction? Can you imagine suffering the weight of an unjust master? You, you hear the gospel, you repent, you believe, you are so full of joy, and this is your instruction. How hard it would have been. But we're reminded that the Bible is not a book that shrinks away from the, the harsh realities of reality. The Bible doesn't pretend. It's not make-believe. It's not. God's not trying to portray everything as brightly and as bright and wonderful. But as much as he gives us the glorious heights of who the Lord Jesus is, the marvelous excellencies we want to see proclaimed, he also takes us to the depths. And that's where we are right here. We are in the depths of the application of living out the gospel. And it's in the very heart of this tragedy, of this difficulty that there is the spark of glory amongst the people of God. And it's in the seriousness of this submission and in the pain of this suffering that the gospel is so powerfully seen and preached. So before we come to apply it to ourselves, I want you to feel the heaviness of the scriptures that are in your hands. I want you to feel how hard this is. And we come to some utterly stunning things. Why? They are slaves. They are to submit to the good and the unjust. Why? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in, this, uh, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This submission to the unjust masters puts flesh on the gospel. That's the first thing that this does. Here's what he's saying. Friends, your suffering is not meaningless. This injustice in front of you is not meaningless. It's a message to us today. Whatever suffering looks like for you, you might be here with your stomachs in knots this morning. Because there is suffering, there is injustice, there is close. It might be ill health, it might be our finances, it might be our job, it might be physical health, it might be mental health, it might be our relationships, our families, it might be death. Whatever it might be, friends, your suffering is not meaningless. But in lots of ways, the way we respond to that suffering and the way we live within injustice and suffering is a powerful and living testimony of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Here's, here's what Peter's saying. If we were to say, why suffer? He would say to us, because Jesus suffered. Or if we were to say, Lord, I don't deserve this. Well, you're in good company, friends. Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. You're not alone. You face injustice, you are not alone because our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, faced it himself. Or you might say, Peter, this feels like giving up. This feels like dying. Well, yes. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Yes, it does feel like dying. He died by his wounds, you have been healed. You see, Jesus is the root and the example of our witness. It's him that we testify about, and it's him that is also our model of how we testify. Why? Because who's this gospel witness for? Well, it's for the masters as much as it's for anybody. You see, as Jesus would suffer for us, the sinners that would put him on the cross, Christian slaves are called to suffer unjust masters just as well that the gospel might be displayed. You see, this is one of these places where the gospel does something that nothing else does. This picture of the Lord Jesus. We'll focus on this at the communion table. There are apt words for us to do so with. Every other religion will cry, we don't want evil, we demand payment, we demand justice. But it's only here, in the price paid by the Lord Jesus, following a crucified Savior that says, yes, there is justice, but there is mercy. There is justice against the wrongdoer, but recognizing he died for the wrongdoer. 
You see, Peter's not saying, do this. This is easy. You're new in Jesus. Just be happy. But what he's saying is, in your obedience to this command, you are doing what the Lord Jesus did. It's the exact opposite of easy. And it is the full picture, a great picture of this, of Matthew 16, as Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's exactly what they're being called to do. That's exactly what is being shown for us here. Denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. I guess the second thing in this is we submit, submit to your masters because the hope in God is magnified. Our hope in the Lord God is magnified. The worth of the Lord Jesus is magnified amongst the suffering. Peter says that it is gracious when God's people endure unjust suffering with a hope that is fixed on heaven. And when Christian slaves return injustice with love and submission, what they're saying is my future glory is in God. My hope is in the Lord Jesus and it is so secure, it is so good, it is so full of joy that I will endure this momentary injustice for now. What more could glorify God than a heart that says that? And the principle really behind that is your suffering cannot outweigh eternal glory. Whether that be the temporal suffering of a Christian slave, whether that be you sitting here right now, those that you know or love or hold dear, even if it is a lifetime of suffering, when a lifetime of suffering is met with the eternal enduring glory of God, it evaporates like a drop of water that touches the sun. That is not to undermine our sufferings. It is not to undermine our injustices. But our hope is not in the comfort of now. Our hope is in eternal glory. That's what he's been telling these believers the whole way through chapter one as elect exiles. This isn't your home. Your home is to come. Focus on it. Love it. Hold it dear. This is why we can live today and suffer injustice or hatred, whatever it might be, for blessing. That's why when those speak against us, we can turn around and speak in love. That is why we can take insult and not return it. This is why, brothers and sisters, you can stare straight in the face of suffering and have joy. Craig's going to take us into a, an exceptionally challenging passage next week of the third illustration of Christian submission is husbands and wives. But in a marital setting, in the corruption of a government setting, in a slavery setting, 
there is a future glory that outweighs the suffering of the here and now. And more than that, we have a saviour who suffered first. You see, if Christ isn't king, if the Lord Jesus isn't who he says he is, all of our suffering is in vain. Suffering is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. And these sort of texts, if Christ is not king, offer us no sense of satisfaction or relief. If you don't know and love the Lord Jesus, this is, you read this and this is, this is hard for all of us, but this is exceptionally hard for you as you come to read this. But we know that we have a saviour that suffered and that means we are not alone in the pain. They were not in the first century, you are not now. You are not alone in your weakness, you are not alone in the suffering and the injustice. You are not alone when it feels like the walls of your life are caving in round about you. You are not alone we are presented here with a pattern of the gospel to the world this is defeat our response to a corrupt government slaves to their masters this looks like losing this looks like total and utter defeat this reads as if these slaves are to give up But this is actually the pathway that leads to victory. What Peter does here, see this, he doesn't add the gospel in as some kind of side issue. He doesn't just add it in and randomly try and fit it because he thinks, it's been a few verses since I've explicitly spoken of the gospel, therefore I'm going to cram it in here. He doesn't do that because they are intimately connected. Because on the cross, when we looked at Jesus, it looked like he was losing. It looked like he was losing everything. On the cross, it looked like a failed teacher was dying that would disprove what he teaches. It looked like a failed shepherd was dying, leaving his sheep utterly helpless. It looked like a criminal was being hung on a tree by the religious hypocrites in Roman tyranny. That's what it looked like. But what was happening? What was happening on that cross? By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, it looked utterly bleak and utterly desperate that everything was lost but in the midst of all of it by his wounds you have been healed this crucified shepherd was gathering in the strays was making a way for us. You see, if we understand what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross, we'll understand something really important about the way we as the Lord's people, these brothers and sisters of the first century, were to respond to the evils and injustices like slavery. And in the same way that the Lord Jesus suffering under powerful injustice, it ultimately ended the power of that injustice. And we see the same reflected in an institution like slavery in our lands, that this God-dependent Christ imitating, copying 
suffering of slaves under injustice would eventually lead to the power to undo and destroy this injustice. You see, when the enemy attacks God's people, he always loses. He always loses. Even when it looks like we are losing. Because that's what this looks like to the world. So this difficult instruction of submission and love and honor, despite injustice and suffering, is not just for them. We'll come in a couple of weeks. Uh, will we come to it next week? Uh, no, we won't. Two weeks' time, we'll come to uh, chapter 3 and verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. There's the call to all of us. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called. We've seen it in the Lord Jesus. Last week showed us the battle plan, really, of the early church in dealing with the political world, what it meant to be honorable and to live well, to submit to the authorities. And here, really, that battle plan for these slaves was to die, to give themselves more and more to the Lord Jesus in submission to their masters here. And it's utterly radical. There's nothing else like it. It's utterly incredible that this is what they'd be called to. Reminds me of those words simply, Christ triumphant, ever reigning. Saviour, Master, King, Lord of heaven, our life sustaining. Hear us as we sing, yours the glory and the crown, the high renown, the eternal name. Because what happened as these believers lived faithfully in submission to the government, as they lived faithfully under the submission of unjust masters as the gospel spread, their gospel witness, their, their witness was honourable and the gospel would advance. So, sometimes in life it might feel like following Jesus means losing everything. Laying down our rights, our comforts, our autonomy, our opinions, our emotions, our self-determination, everything that makes us who we are. That may well feel like loss. But here's the hope. There is no comfort, there is no right, there is no possession, there is nothing that you love that if laid down in death with Christ won't be raised up to better in glory. He is so, so good and so faithful and so kind. You know, I wondered where to finish this. And it was very late last night when I pondered on this. Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I think that's quite a good place for us to finish. We're reminded in this that we are not the first to deal with unfair treatment. He experienced it first. We are not clueless about what to do in the suffering. He leads by example. And we are not alone. He has shown us what it means to live a life of submission that looks like losing, but will ultimately rise 
in the greatest of glories. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Be happy in the hope that sits before you and the knowledge of what your saviour, the Lord Jesus, has done for you. Because of what he's done for you, you can be patient, whatever that tribulation looks like. So we want to be in union and communion with him through prayer. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You know, many of these first century readers for the first time, the slaves reading this, will have had scars on their backs from harsh masters. Many of them will have seen the harshest and most difficult of injustices. But it is by his wounds that they have been healed. And it is by his wounds that you and I too have been healed. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that your scriptures do not shy away from the realities of life. That the scriptures are are earnestly show us what it is like in the hardest and most difficult of circumstances to follow the Lord Jesus. We thank you that 2,000 years later we can see the gospel pattern at work in an evil institution, but we too, Lord, can know that whatever comes our way, whatever suffering and injustice might look like, whoever we might have to submit to, we can do so with a deep-rooted joy that we have been healed through the Lord Jesus who suffered first. Lord, lead us deeper with you. Lead us deeper with you into surrender that we might give more and more of the things that we hold deep to ourselves to you. That we might grow in our love for you and in turn our joy, our peace and our hope that we find so deeply rooted in you. Bless your people this morning, we pray. Amen.